Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we turn sound into colour, visit Rat Park, and sneak into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But first up, here's the news. Natural compounds can make mice younger. Previous experiments have succeeded in slowing down ageing in mice by activating the sirtuin set of genes with calorie restriction and intense exercise. A team of researchers from Harvard University and the University of New South Wales have managed to actually reverse ageing using a derivative of vitamin B3 called nicotinamide mononucleotide to activate the same set of genes. The substance is also being tested as a treatment for type 2 diabetes, muscular dystrophy, Alzheimer's disease and chronic fatigue syndrome. The paper was published in the journal Cell and titled Declining NAD Plus Induces a Pseudo-Hypoxic State Disrupting Nuclear Mitochondrial Communication During Aging. Cells in the human body have a nucleus controlling them and mitochondria to convert food into chemical energy. These two systems, the nucleus and the mitochondria, communicate fast and frequently, but the communication slows down as we age, with massive consequences. The communication is mediated by a coenzyme called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD+. Early in the evolution of multicellular life, mitochondria started out as a separate organism with its own genome. When it was incorporated into cells, the two systems needed to coordinate to process food efficiently. This oxidative phosphorylation system is the metabolic pathway which converts food into cellular fuel, adenosine triphosphate or ATP. Sorry about all the acronyms. The study used mice engineered to age prematurely by losing the NAD plus coenzyme more quickly than would happen naturally. To increase the levels of NAD plus in the prematurely aged mice, they injected them with nicotinamide mononucleotide, NMN, which the body uses to make NAD plus. The control mice were put on a calorie-restricted diet. The NMN increased the levels of NAD plus to youthful levels, and the communications problems between nucleus and mitochondria were healed. This meant that the mice equivalent to 90-year-old humans were rejuvenated to the equivalent of 40-year-olds, and the mice equivalent to 60-year-old humans rejuvenated to the equivalent of 20-year-olds, on measures such as cognitive ability, that is, concentration and memory, the degree of muscle wastage, insulin resistance and inflammation. In just one week, the older animal's muscles were indistinguishable from a young mouse's muscles in just seven days, just like Charles Atlas used to promise. 
The effects of the drug are like concentrated exercise and diet. Researchers say they were shocked to see the changes happen in just a week. Professor David Sinclair has previously been behind research that found resveratrol, the substance found in red wine and dark chocolate that makes anti-aging gene SIRT1 run faster. The same gene can be activated by a calorie restriction diet, which is one that gives all of the nutrients but a fraction of the energy of a normal diet. Unfortunately, calorie restriction diets have unpleasant side effects on the body's hormonal systems, and resveratrol didn't slow down aging for people. This new compound, NMN, activates not just SIRT1, but all seven of the sirtuin anti-aging genes implicated in longevity. Further studies will test whether NMN leads to mice living longer lives, whether it helps them lose weight, or has any side effects. Professor Sinclair doesn't recommend anyone trying NMN just yet, but to wait until it's been tested for a safe and effective dose, so it's shown to be safe from side effects. We don't want any nasty surprises. Professor David Sinclair from Harvard University and Dr Nigel Turner from the University of New South Wales plan human trials for 2014. Sydney Mini Maker Fair that was held on Sunday, November 24th at the Powerhouse Museum. Susanna Alarcon told me about her Chromato Composer, a machine that draws music. Sure, this machine is called a Chromato Composer and what it does is get the sounds from voices, environment, noise and maps it into a unique drawing. So what it's driving the motion and the patterns are the frequencies and also the amplitudes and the changes of it it's what is going to give us a different drawing once you have the drawing you can scan it back again into sound and what is interesting here is that the frequencies are mapped into colors so if you scan the same color it's going to give you a similar frequency but the difference is that now this is an endless core and it's going to depend entirely on the interaction of the user on how you get the new sounds from it. And that's it. <laughs> and did you design it? Yeah, me, Susanna, and Pan were the designers and developers of this. Um, this is using processing, Arduino, Super Collider, and G-Code for driving the motion. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Great. And if people want to find out who've missed the Maker Fair, where can they look for you online? Well, you can Google us. Yes. Uh, susanna.alarcon.carbonmade.com uh, The project is going to be there. We're now Sydney Uni students. So there's going to be also information in Subversive and Merchants. That it's a gallery exhibition at the Teen Sheds Gallery in Sydney Uni. And also there's going to be like a lot of information there. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to you. <laughs> you can find more of Susanna's work at susannaalacon.carbonmade.com
Look to www.diffusionradio.com for my gallery of photos from the Mini Maker Fair. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Rat Park is a little-known series of experiments from the late 1970s that challenge our ways of thinking about drug addiction. We've all heard the story. Rats in a cage who can inject morphine whenever they want. They get addicted and keep hitting the lever for more ignoring food and water until they waste away and die. Just one taste and you're doomed. Stanford University professor Avram Goldstein, who created the study, said, A rat addicted to heroin is not rebelling against society, is not a victim of socioeconomic circumstances, is not a product of a dysfunctional family, and is not a criminal. The rat's brain is simply controlled by the action of the heroin on its brain. All of the world's drug policies are based on this research. And the research seems to show that drugs are addictive to all of us and that it doesn't matter about your personal circumstances. If you consume addictive drugs, you'll become addicted and you'll choose more drugs over anything else on offer. So we have a war on drugs because drugs take away our free will. There are other ways to look at drug addiction based on other research. What if the research really just showed that severely distressed animals will relieve their stress with drugs if they can. What if drugs are an escape from a lack of freedom and not a thief of freedom themselves? In 1978, Bruce Alexander and his colleagues at the Simon Fraser University in British Columbia in Canada noticed that all of the addiction research was based on rats being isolated in cages despite being very social creatures. The cages were cramped, they had nothing to do and no company. In short, the rats were in horrible confinement, and the hypothesis was that they chose the drugs as an escape when they had no other way to alleviate the suffering imposed on them. To test this hypothesis, they wanted to put rats in an environment where they could practice their natural rat behaviours and enjoy themselves with other rats to play and explore. So they created Rat Park. Rat Park was an 8.8 metre square housing colony with 200 times the floor area of a standard lab cage. They covered this floor with fragrant cedar shavings for the rats to nest in, and scattered boxes and cans for the rats to hide and play in. They gave the rats other rats to play, fight, mate, and interact with. There were up to 20 rats of both sexes living there, with plenty of food, balls and wheels for play, and enough space for mating and raising litters. They even painted the walls with scenes of woodland and natural environments, which gave the team something nice to look at during the long hours they spent inside the room over the next four years. Probably didn't do that much for the rats. But in all ways, Rat Park was a rat haven. Alexander's team wanted to test rats' responses to heroin, but they couldn't get legal permission. Heroin is converted into morphine in the body, so they used morphine instead, which they could get permission to use. They bought the morphine from the Canadian Department of Health. But because it had a street value of $250,000, they stored it in a bank safety deposit box. 
all the rats were painted with coloured dye, with a particular pattern used for each individual rat. Food was available in the main area of the enclosure, but the only way the rats could get a drink was to climb a ramp and enter a small clear tunnel through the wall at one end of Rat Park. This tunnel was only big enough for one rat at a time. This prevented the rats from watching the drinking habits of their neighbours and let the researchers measure fluid intake for each individual rat with a counter and a video camera. In the first experiment, they randomly assigned 16 rats of both sexes to either the isolated cages where they couldn't see, hear or touch other rats, or to Rat Park. They attempted to seduce the rats into drinking water laced with morphine by sweetening it with sugar. Once the rats had tried the drugged water, they slowly increased the sweetness to see how the bitterness affected the rats drinking the morphine water. The rats resisted initially, but when the water was finally sweet enough, the caged rats drank themselves into a drug haze, drinking 19 times more of the drugged water than the Rat Park rats. In Rat Park, most of the rats avoided the drugged water. The researchers increased the sugar and the caged rats slipped into an narcotic fog. The rats in Rat Park had a little bit more of the sweeter water, but mostly they wanted to play with the other rats rather than be drugged. In a side experiment to see if caged rats were avoiding the morphine sugar water because of the bitter taste, or to avoid being affected by the drug, they added naltrexone to the liquid. Naltrexone is a drug that blocks the narcotic action of morphine, so the rats just couldn't get high, but they could still taste the sugar. The rats that had avoided the drugged water turned out to be enthusiastic about drinking it when they learned it didn't dull their senses. The researchers were confident that the rats had been avoiding the effects of the drugs, not their taste. In another experiment, instead of giving the rats the choice to become addicts or not, they trained them to be addicts so they could measure the effects of withdrawal on their behaviour. They wanted to see if morphine addiction took away their free will, if the withdrawal symptoms were so bad that the rats would feel forced to consume the drug. The rats were trained to become morphine addicts for two months by cycles of being offered water laced with morphine, alternated with undrugged water. Then they gave both sets of rats free choice between undrugged water and morphine water. The caged rats actually increased the amount of drug they took when given a free choice. But in Rat Park, the rats decreased their drug use, despite visibly suffering some withdrawal effects like twitching. In Rat Park, the rats seemed to be putting up with the withdrawal effects so they could return to the normal social life without being disrupted by drugs. It was like they preferred playing with their friends and exploring their surroundings to getting high. After many experiments over four years, the researchers found three common threads. The rats had to be coaxed into taking morphine, despite its reputation as a demon drug seducer. They had to add sugar, isolation, and force them to get used to taking the drug, or they wouldn't want to take it. Given a chance to live in a normal rat society with comfortable housing and social contact, the rats living in Rat Park had little appetite for opiate drugs. Chemical addiction was not the strongest factor in the behaviour of the rats. Rather than being identically spellbound by addiction, the rats' drug-taking differed according to their physical, mental and social setting. When it came time to publish, 
two major science journals, Science and Nature, rejected the papers. So they published instead in the journal Psychopharmacology, a respectable but smaller journal. Their papers were titled The Effect of Housing and Gender on Morphine Self-Administration in Rats and Effect of Early and Later Colony Housing on Oral Ingestion of Morphine in Rats. In 1982, the university cut the funding to Rat Park, and it was dismantled. Bruce Alexander continued to wonder about the meaning of his findings. Why were the rats in Rat Park able to resist the freely available drugs? What was it about being in a cage that led the rats to lose themselves in taking drugs? Would humans locked in a cage feel the same way? Would other types of isolation have the same effect? What if the difference between being addicted or not being addicted to drugs was whether you saw the world as your cage or your park? Bruce Alexander went on to study human addiction and published a book called Globalization of Addiction in 2008. He has a website, globalizationofaddiction.ca. I highly recommend Stuart Macmillan's amazing webcomic of Rat Park and his very detailed pages about the research. You can find the link on diffusionradio.com. Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. And finally, John August brings us an interview about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is an international trade treaty being negotiated in secret by the nations of the Pacific, and it's dominated by the USA. Leaked information about the treaty shows that it's favouring corporate interests over the public interest. John August spoke with Dr. Matthew Rimmer, Associate Professor at the Australian National University College of Law. John recorded the interview on Skype. Unfortunately, while Dr. Rimmer's voice isn't too distorted, John's voice was completely randomised. As a result, John's broken the interview up with commentary from himself and Shard Kaur between questions. My apologies for the quality of the recording. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is a sweeping trade agreement that has been currently negotiated by a dozen countries who are part of the Pacific Rim. Uh, at the moment, there are talks in Singapore aimed at concluding agreement on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of the most controversial chapters of the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, is the Investor State Dispute Settlement System. Uh, the Investor State Dispute Settlement System enables foreign investors to uh, challenge government regulation that uh, affects their investments. Um, that clause is uh, very controversial, uh, particularly because um, investor rules have been exploited by uh, large transnational companies. So big tobacco have deployed um, investor rules to challenge Australia's plain packaging regime under a Hong Kong investment uh, system. And similarly in South America, graphic health warnings have been kind of challenged under investor clauses. Uh, in Canada, there's been a great deal of concern about Eli Lilly, a big pharmaceutical drug company, uh, bringing in action against Canada's drug patent uh, laws after um, concern by the brand name pharmaceutical company um, over how Canadian laws were being applied in relation to that subject matter. And moreover, there have been uh, worries about how 
investor-state dispute settlement systems have been applied in relation to environmental matters. Uh, so uh, Canada is being uh, attacked by Lone Pine over a moratorium on fracking in Quebec uh, under a NAFTA investor clause. Uh, and in addition to kind of the existing uh, level of, of cases in relation to investment, there's also been a kind of concern about how such clauses might be um, deployed uh, in other contexts. So particularly in terms of the debate over climate change, George Monbiot has been concerned that you know, investor state rules could be used to smash any attempt to curb the greed of the energy companies and to leave um, fossil fuels in the ground. And he was kind of worried that investment rules would shut down democratic alternatives and outlaw left-wing politics. I think it's, it's a very kind of controversial one, particularly because the coalition government in Australia um, has recently expressed a willingness to agree to investment clauses in return for access to key markets. So the recent concluded free trade agreement with Korea features um, an investment state dispute settlement system. Well, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is not a traditional trade agreement. I mean, it has 29 chapters. Now, some of those chapters deal with kind of traditional issues like market access and tariffs. But, uh, you know, some of the issues relate to a wide range of other regulatory matters like the environment and questions about investment and intellectual property and uh, questions of public health. So I mean, I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership is kind of quite um, broad and overreaching in terms of its great ambition and scope. Um, and I guess that kind of makes an assessment of the impact of like the Trans-Pacific Partnership a very complicated exercise because it's not just about questions about um, trade access, it's also about a wide range of um, other issues as well. Uh, so there's been a real concerted strategy over the past couple of decades by the United States in particular to try to link trade with other issues. So you know the World Trade Organization as it was being set up, uh, you know intellectual property was combined with trade and you could see that evolve with the Australian United States Free Trade Agreement in 2004. But you know, massive regional agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Trans-Atlantic um, Trade and Investment Partnership um, show a kind of quite incredible development. And I, I find it really striking in terms of then trying to think about, well, how are these massive deals interact with some of the existing multilateral frameworks for trade and intellectual property and health. And to my mind that kind of creates all sorts of uh, tensions between the system set up by the United Nations and um, you know, some of these proposed regional agreements um, covering huge um, parts of the uh, globe. The agreement um, in relation to intellectual property has a large section on intellectual property enforcement. Um, that has a lot of echoes of the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement which was put forward the other year and um, rejected in places like the European Parliament. The Trans-Pacific Partnership really focuses upon trying to enhance civil remedies um, and try to expand uh, criminal offences. 
Uh, and also it seeks to um, put in place customs and border measures. Um, and there's also some provisions in relation to intermediary liability or ISP liability. But particularly kind of those provisions target um, trademark counterfeiting, copyright piracy, and perceived economic espionage, particularly in relation to trade secrets. Uh, so there's a very kind of concerted effort to try to boost the arsenal of weapons available in relation to intellectual property enforcement. However, of course, there are kind of problems in terms of that approach. I mean, there are concerns that um, the scope of the offences is overbroad, um, and there's a concern about how those deals might affect questions about due process and freedom of speech and innovation um, and privacy. And I guess there's a kind of fundamental question about um, proportionality and how proportional. This interview of Dr Matthew Rimmer by John August was originally broadcast on Workers Radio by Radio Skid Row. We'll be playing the rest of the interview in future episodes of Diffusion. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send us an email so we know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio Facebook page and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion needs funding. The Bank of Ian runs low. Please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com if you'd like to sponsor the show to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>